Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Yes, we're here again. We are here, Brendan here with markvetgurus.com, the place to go, the place to be, the place to look at previous episodes and do a bit of a search for your favourite topics. It is the week ending 26th of October 2018. And also don't forget to visit patreon.com vetgurus and throw us a bone, as we like to say, throw us a, a dollar or two dollars or two hundred dollars if you'd like to help cover our costs that would be fantastic mark i've got a a, 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 i'm going to jump in straight away and say i have an announcement verity has responded to us our winner of the quiz has responded as you well know she replied to us and she is from tasmania and congratulations and i've already sent her the book mark i've sent her my part of the prize so you need to get moving, print off that amazing photo. Have you selected a photograph to print for her of I, a little I have, birdie? I have got a bird that I'm, I'd be keen for, to share, a bird to, that I'm keen to share. But as you well know, in my usual fashion of being organised, I have not organised to print it yet. So the book will arrive before the image. Well, I am. you'll have to send me a a little pic of that, um, email me or, or send me a message of that, the pic that Verity will um, receive. Um, and we won't tell her what it is, one, because I don't know what it is and um, I think it's better to be surprised, Mark, I think, with that. And, um, yeah, hopefully it's not a, a bin chicken. Um, so There's we'll nothing wrong with the bin chicken. We'll see what. Long legs. <laughs> well, Dinosaur. <yes>. <laughs> Yes, and for those of you who don't realise, look at our um, listen to our previous episode. Um, well, actually, it might be a future episode about bin chickens. I think it's one we recorded for when we're away a few weeks, or maybe it isn't. I'm all <laughs> confused, Mark, as usual. Um, let's jump into news stories and new. Um, and we're going to be very punchy as usual, not. And um, we, you, we, well, you, you've been on Tinder apparently. Well. My good, our good friend Doug has, has sent me a uh, a wonderful article um, that's titled "Pet Wingman um, Research." That's carried out, and I love these. Um, you know, most of the research topics we uh, we talk about on our news segments they're associated with a reputable uh, um, tertiary institution of uh, further education, and um, and uh, not that I'm trying to cast web box. Uh, in any other light, but geez, it's not our typical research institute, Brent. But they did a um, a study, very unscientific study, if I may say, where they took uh, yeah, two single people, a bloke and a woman, and they whacked them onto Tinder, um, and I think another couple of profiles, so another couple of um, uh, matching de- dating websites, um, Bumble, maybe the other one. And they uh, posted pictures with and without the pets, without a dog. Um, and no surprise, Brendan, no surprise whatsoever, the pictures yes. of people, of both men and women, that included their pet, 
got uh, now what is i don't know brendan when you when you're on tinder is it you sweep right to accept anyway whatever it is they uh, got more accepted uh, responses when they um, no comment mark <laughs> no comment and and the um statistics were fairly significant and of course um as you well know brendan you can um, you can amass fairly significant numbers on Tinder pretty quickly. So um, the the uh, the you know the the sample space is uh, fairly significant. At least that's what you've told me. Um, and um, the men receive nearly forty percent more swipes on Tinder and Bumble if their profile picture featured a dog, um, whereas women the percentage jumped to 70% more positive uh, responses to those profiles. Um, I, I just, um, it's wonderful research. It's uh, an outstanding finding. Um, and I'm, 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 I can't say I'm surprised at all. I think... Um, and, and that's why you changed your picture, is it? Exactly, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know where Doug comes up with me, but obviously he spends a, a little bit of time on apps that perhaps perhaps the family should be um, keeping them away from, Mark. Um, <laughs> I have a... Um, my first story is a, 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 a good, feel, good news, good feel story, Mark, and that's about Lady... The dog, Lady the dog, at the ripe old age of 17, ended up in a animal shelter in Norwich, Connecticut in the USA. And uh, the animal house attendant said, uh, we were pretty sure she was dumped. Well, perhaps that's um, a bit of an obvious statement there. She, but she was blind and deaf and she was really sad. <laughs> and Lamb's organisation, Lamb was Chris Lamb, um, the spokesperson, um, worked closely with the Norwich Animal Control and they get a lot of cruelty cases with each dog and medical needs. So what was so special about this particular dog, which was called Lady? Um, he was there when this long-haired Dachshund was, was brought in and they thought that the chances are that we'd um, have to try and get her out to foster care immediately because um, nobody would want them. So we put her in what they called their emergency foster care. And they did a quick little scan there for a microchip and um, sure enough, she had the microchip. So again, it shows the value of the old microchips, Mark. And um, we um, were quite surprised with some of the animals that we managed to rehome, especially the unusual pets and particular ones that I find um, definitely worthwhile microchipping, especially with the other species, is, is ferrets, Mark, because um, often we have ferrets that... Um, may find their way back to their original owner where they've wandered a fair distance from home. And as you know, a lot of these ferrets can be quite hard to distinguish from each other just by just visually with them. So, yeah, I think um, we need to really keep pushing the microchip um, but, um, microchipping our unusual pets. But back to the story. Hours later, they witnessed a once-in-a-lifetime reunion because apparently it was five years previously that Lady had disappeared from the from the property of Richard and Michelle um, of a um, interesting surname that I can't pronounce, and they thought she'd been taken and um, by a critter, is what they said. So it was just a nice, fun little story that uh, five years after they'd lost her, they they received her animal back, and um, he, when he saw his little um, 
lady took into Richard's arms as soon as as if she'd never left them, and he just burst into tears. So yeah, that was a nice little story, and they've got a, a couple of accompanying pics there, Mark, of um, lady getting reacquainted with her owners. Um, so very lucky little puppy, or not quite a puppy. There is it, a seventeen-year-old dog that got reunited with her with her um, family after five years of being missing. So that's my story number one, Mark. What else? What have you got? Well, I, the, uh, the, I just wanted to reiterate, well, there's an increasing number of those stories, isn't there, Brendan? The microchips, and as you said, in we often really battle uh, hard to encourage clients to put them into ferrets. And macaws are the other one. Um, uh, we, I don't think people should have macaws because they do regularly make a little bit of a dash for freedom at some point, and um, it's always good to have something to actually identify the birds with some certainty. But my next story has to do with octopuses, Brendan, and I'm not going to entertain the whole octopus-octopi argument. We're just calling them octopuses at the moment. Um, and this article from an uh, online Spark News Impact Journalism Day uh, website, it tells the story of how octopuses play a role in conservation. So... Um, one of the things that, and I've been, I feel I've been pretty lucky to see this sort of thing firsthand where um, uh, uh, people in maybe less developed countries have imposed on them some of our standards, I don't know, some of our ideals where we would like certain parts of the world to be protected for future generations where the people that live nearby may actually just be struggling to, like, feed the family. And the thought of conservation is uh, is a nice sort of ideal, but it's certainly not in their day-to-day, uh, you know, concept of survival. They just are trying to make sure they've got enough to feed the family. So it's often difficult to uh, convey to them um, how important uh, conservation is and the benefits to them. And this story tells about how octopuses can play that role because octopuses uh, breed rapidly. They breed relatively rapidly. And so in situations where local communities can be convinced to uh, set aside part of maybe the marine environment, this particular story is in Madagascar, off the coast of Madagascar, and where local communities could be convinced to set aside some of the uh, reef that they were that they would traditionally fish and uh, declare it a reserve and not fish it for a period of time, um, then the interesting consequence was that there was an increase in the number of octopuses and an increase in the size of the octopuses as a result. And so um, these communities could then, um, you know. Uh, do the fellow paddock sort of principle, change the area, um, declare that area that had been left alone for several years uh, okay to fish on and and then declare another part uh, a reserve and not fish on it. And, um, and it was the researcher's target not to protect octopuses. Octopuses were just like the keynote species, the one to deliver the message, the one that was easiest because the villagers would see the difference. Um, but because they had a, uh, you know, a, a headline species, they could protect the environment and thereby protect a whole range of species that, uh, that were not 
um, of immediate importance to the villagers. So it um, it's a really practical story, and um, and I, I found it very um, you know. Uh, Sensitive. I found it sensitive to the needs of the local people, and that's often been a concern of mine. That um, that uh, it's nice to save these areas, but it's uh, it's difficult to ask the people that live there to give up what is essentially their livelihood um, for the future when we live so comfortably, Brendan. Yes, I thought it quite clever the way he he sort of used the octopuses or octopi um, to to promote the um, that sort of program, yeah. And it, it also had some very, the, that particular article, I don't know whether it was tied in with that research, it had some very good pictures there, Mark, too. I really liked some of the um, pics in that article. Um, so very stunning, the photos there. I wish I could, um, it's almost as good as the one that you're sending to Verity. I expect a couple of those there. They were very good pictures. So, no, great article. Um, my The final news story, Mark, that I'm going to take is an answer or, or, or an attempted answer to another one of our emails that we're trying to slowly tick off the list. And this was from our um, another good friend of ours, um, Sandy in Canberra, and um, he sent us this email many moons ago, and um, I'll just uh, read out part of this email. A question, Sandy says, a wildlife researcher friend is working on the problem of toxoplasmosis, infecting wildlife, changing their behaviour to make them less afraid and even attracted to cats with the devastating consequences we all know about. They asked me if our clients who really love cats are also infected and under control of the toxo. And I thought that was a very, um, very perceptive, very clever question and, and very insightful question. I've asked all my college, colleagues, says Sandy, and like me, they are surprised this has not been asked or answered as far as we know before. Help us gurus, says Sandy. Well, Sandy... We're going to do our best. We are, aren't we, Mark? We're going to do our best to try and answer Sandy's question there. And as soon as I thought of this, I did a little bit of research and I thought, well, there's only one place to go with a question like this, Mark, and that's the Neurosceptic. I went straight to the Neurosceptic website and um, his little article that he... he, he um, he or she puts, I think it's a, a male, um, with um, with uh, Discover Magazine, I think, is where the articles get um, published, the Neurosceptic. And it's a really good summary of a fantastic paper that was published in a PLOS One. And the um, title of the paper was, Is Toxoplasma Gondii Infection Related to Brain and Behaviour Impairment in Humans? Question mark. Evidence from a population representative birth cohort. And our friend, the neurosceptic, um, summarizes this, this particular paper very well. And it's quite a good, it's an excellent paper. And I think it's an excellent summary of the paper. So much of what I'm going to then summarize myself here is from neurosceptics um, website here um, or, or link which we'll have in our show notes. Um, so um, reading from his or her comments in, in, in the article, many researchers believe that T. gondii infection or toxoplasmosis can alter human behavior. Among other organs, a parasite infects the brain and it has also been blamed for making people more impulsive and more prone to mental illness, including schizophrenia. The idea of behavioural toxoplasmosis has driven a huge amount of research and media interest. 
including Sandy's comments about the possibility that um, you may decide to keep cats because they've they've um, infected you with toxoplasmosis so you like cats but in a new plus one paper duke university researchers suggest that they may be nothing to worry about after all they report that toxoplasmosis is associated with essentially no behavioral abnormalities in humans despite many of the other papers that potentially um, suggest that link Um, that's basically the summary but i'm going to go into a little bit more detail mark They examined the Dunedin Longitudinal Study, which was a sample of over 1,000 people born in Dunedin, New Zealand in 1972 to 73 and followed up from birth. And they tested all the participants' blood samples taken at the age of 38 years for antibodies against T. gondii. Of 837 people who gave blood samples, 28% were tested positive. And then they did a bit, bit of a review on on um, on whether they had any um, association with the toxoplasmosis with with personality trait changes or rates of schizophrenia or depression and other um, other potential links included poor impulse control, which which is um, things like criminal convictions or driving offences or accident claims on insurance, um, and part of the conclusions from that particular study was our results suggest that a positive test for T. gondii antibodies does not result in an increased susceptibility to neuropsychiatric disorders, poor impulse control or impaired neurocognitive ability. This is, to our knowledge, the most comprehensive assessment of the possible link between T. gondii infections and a variety of impairments in a single cohort. And um, our little, our neurosceptic friend goes on to say, yet many previous studies have reported an association. How do Sugden et al. account for the inconsistency between their results and those other reported um, papers and publications? And the part of the, the summary in this paper um, goes on to say, this is, to our knowledge, the most comprehensive assessment of possible link between T. gondii infections and a variety of impairments. Previous positive associations have been reported across different studies, often in selected or clinical examples. For example, one study will examine the link to violence and another link to schizophrenia and yet another to the link to self-injury and so forth. Although our cohort if is of modest size, um, that, that the it was powerful enough to detect small effect sizes. So why did they um, think that the other other studies um, were not um, valid? Because they concluded the, that it was all mainly hype and that people were thinking that well, there was an association and therefore they were looking for it in their studies and that this particular microbe um, and, and conclusions about it uh, may have gone a little bit too far. And um, their final sort of comment or quote from the piece was that it, it has been observed that the hotter the topic and as more studies are reported and accumulate, replication becomes more difficult. If we accept that the findings reported in the present article represent scenario two, then views of the link between T. gondii and aberrant behaviour may need to be tempered accordingly. So basically what they're saying, Mark, is that... Um, most of the other studies are a load of crap um, because um, there's bias there um, considering that um, people think there'll be a positive response um, and therefore they're looking for that positive response um, within individual potential links rather than a broader a broader look at the um, neuropsychiatric um, sort of um, effects of 
the supposed mind-altering parasite T. condyi, Mark. Um, I found, and I found it, there was two um, really cool things about that um, that study. Um, the first one was that they, uh, that you know, you've already highlighted the fact that they did discuss the other reasons and um, uh, in science there's always a possibility that where, um, you know, there's unconscious bias and we're looking for particular results. Um, but um, a lot of those other studies had relatively low numbers even compared to this, and um, that lower number results in a lower statistical power to detect associations, um, that smaller sample size, not like your Tinder profile, Brennan. And, um, and the other one that I found really interesting um, and they particularly applied that to the, the the study that looked at schizophrenia, that um, the numbers were not high enough to be... Uh, uh, they was, the statistics were uh, in, called into doubt. Um, but the other thing was that they were not... Uh, they, they did believe that there was a significant association, um, a marginal one, but uh, that it that recently attempted suicide was more common in seropositive individuals. And so while all the other behaviours might, um, might not be influenced by uh, um, toxoplasmosis, maybe the tendency to, um, to attempt suicide might be. And so that's another interesting area of research, Brendan. Yes, and I, and I, and I think that... One one of the bits you sort of touched on there is the reporting or, or studies that are published papers tend to be overwhelmingly positive, don't they? And it's quite difficult to publish a, a negative study. And there's always concerns that um, trying to get negative studies published is 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 difficult. Um, um, and there's and there's lots of studies showing that as well. But yeah, the 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 the, the one line conclusion from the actual plus one study this particular paper I, I think sums it up um, very well and that is um, and the quote is on the whole there was little evidence that T. gondii was related to increased risk of psychiatric disorder poor impulse control personality aberrations or neurocognitive impairment so Sandy I think we might have answered your little your question there not your little question it was a big question and um, the um, neuroskeptic. Um, I like the way neuroskeptic writes and and thinks. Um, so I'm a bit of a fan of the neuroskeptic mark now. And um, neuroskeptic suggests that we we should all become toxoplasmoskeptics. And um, I think I might be putting myself in that particular that particular um, category, Mark. Um, so that's new story number four. That was um, well partially answered, or, or maybe a little bit more than partially answered for for sandy because sandy has lots of these lots of these very sort of philosophical type he questions does, he does that's exactly i was just thinking exactly that brendan i was thinking that's sandy. <laughs> i just see him sitting on the veranda with his hand on his chin head tilted slightly up to the sun going what about this yes and um he's one of those people that um once the night gets longer or the day gets earlier and um the bar um, patrons start thinning out. It's um, he's the person you want sitting next next to you because um, he 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 becomes a philosopher, doesn't he? Even more so, more than more than usual. So, good on you, Sandy. Thanks for that question. 
So we, um, well, we've, we're, we're almost half an hour in, aren't we, Mark? So we should jump into our, our, our smallish um, oh, goodness, big topic that we have this week, Mark, and I think you wanted to sort of I did. chair well, chair. I just have a few questions for you. I think this is a, an excellent topic and, I, you know, I it's going to be a little bit open-ended, I think. we. Uh, I have no doubt there's a, a lot of... Um, questions to be asked but I'm going to ask you some of the more obvious ones. So our topic is um, ultraviolet lighting in reptiles um, and and I suppose my first question it's a topic that um, is is um, immediately clinically relevant because it's a topic that I would literally talk about every day to our uh, reptile clients. Um, so so I was going to ask you Brendan um, what what is uh, ultraviolet light and what is it that you say to your reptile clients when you try to explain it to them? Yes, it's a big subject, isn't it, Mark? So we'll, uh, we may have to make this part one of part two, but but we'll see how we travel. We'll see how we travel. Yes, it's something that I mentioned to all my reptile clients, obviously the the new clients especially, and I do try and summarise it to them um, and just the importance of it and, and why we think it's important with them. And I I don't usually go into as much detail as we will today with, with um talking about the actual whole spectrum etc so what what i might do is yeah what i say to the clients i say uv light is very important to your reptile um and just relating it back to nature and saying nature is good um and that we're providing most of these reptiles they kept in an artificial environment and no matter how well we try and provide adequate lighting within that artificial environment we're still probably missing out most of the time of of, of of spectrum of light that we we'd like to be providing them that would be provided with with natural light so um i do really stress immediately to the clients that they need to think about providing access to natural light to their particular little reptile friends mark that's the first thing i say to them then i go back to say look let's have uv lighting in all enclosures and we recommend uv lighting in all reptile enclosures because as far as i'm concerned we we assume that a reptile needs exposure to UV spectrum regardless of, of, of species involved um, unless proven otherwise. So that was a very poor answer to the very first question, Mark. So UV spectrum, so w- what we're mainly talking about is, is UVB is what we'll concentrate on today and UVB is usually described as being between 290 to 320 nanometers mark which most of that around about 295 to 315 is from which the skin synthesizes the the vitamin d3 precursors um occur um so 290 to 320 roughly is uvb and i, I think we we won't we may not talk much much about it but uva is also important as well as far as our little reptile friends and not just the reptiles but we'll stick with reptiles here mark um and uva is 320 to 295 nanometers around about and uva my sort of summary to uva with clients is is that uva is important in a lot of a lot of things like behavior um, breeding behavior um, feeding behavior and just general well-being and, and they think that's part of the reason why they 
um, they're more active and they appear apparently happier when when we're providing a, an adequate range of UVA as well as the adequate range of, of UVB mark. So, so that's my first little long-winded, poorly responded answer, Mark, to your first question. <laughs> so, so you raise an interesting point there, Brendan. The, the when I talk to my clients, um, there is definitely a sense amongst. Uh, some of the clients, particularly the people who keep uh, pythons, that because they're um, because they're feeding, you know, prey items that have livers and therefore have a, a reserve of vitamin D, uh, vitamin D three, um, that they don't need to provide um, ultraviolet light to those animals uh, because they acquire it through their diet and they don't need to synthesize it. Um, what what do you say to those people? I just get back to basics with them and say, look, it's I treat it like providing the temperature gradients, and we obviously spend a bit of time talking about temperature gradients with all our little reptile friends, and having having a warm end of the enclosure and a cooler end, and we've we have discuss this in a previous podcast and uh, and I say it's exactly like that we want to provide them a, a gradient of UV lighting so that reptile can select UV basking if it wants to or not select UV basking if it if it if it if it doesn't want UV and also the concentration of the UV as well. So I try and keep it simple and say, yeah, um, the aim is to give them the option of UV or not UV if they want to, um, exactly the same as providing a, a temperature gradient. And um, related to that, the specific question you asked, um, with, with the snake owners, they'll say, look, you don't see UV-related um, illnesses or, or signs of clinical disease in, in snakes. And I think we do see it, Mark. It's just that it, it's potentially subclinical most of the time because it's not like our, our obvious um, metabolic bone disease syndrome cases that we see in our, our chelonians and our, um, our lizards that where the diet is definitely inadequate with that particular individual and the UV is inadequate. So we've got a double whammy effect there, Mark, um, in these snakes where we may be providing them with some some um, vitamin D um, via the diet, it still may be inadequate overall. So we're, we're getting subclinical changes there, I expect. And that, you know, this is a theory, Mark, um, that if, if we did a, a decent sort of study into um, um, a, a, a large number of these pet snakes and, and we looked at their calcium levels in detail and their bone density um, and, their, and their, their stored calcium levels, um, I'd expect that we'd we'd probably find that they are lower than than the equivalent um, animals that are out there in the wild. So, And I have seen a, a few really dramatic cases with snakes where I've had the rubbery jaws um, in snakes that, um, that I'm suspicious that we um, have caused from um, inadequate UV um, lighting with that individual. So I say to them that, yeah, it's a comment I made at the start that I assume that all reptiles, like all animals, um, require the option of exposure, exposure to adequate UV um, light in order to potentially have um, normal function. And, and I think you uh, answered that very well. And, and I know uh, I agree with you. I think that there's a, they don't, 
our snakes don't manifest the signs of um, disease associated with absence of ultraviolet light in the same way as our other reptiles. Um, but uh, I think just because it's not as obvious doesn't mean it's not there. And I reckon it, uh, it's exactly as you suggest, when we look in more detail and more rigorously, we will find an association. So what about um, how the... How does, uh, like, what are the actual steps in the synthesis of vitamin D3 in reptiles? Yeah, well, it, it, it is quite complex, but the summary is basically that, uh, so the, for the vitamin D3 synthesis in reptiles is that we require that UV light, so that UVB, the 295 to 315, and warmth as well. So I, I think that's a real key point there, and... and um, Last few years, people have really been um, starting to push that in that it's not just that the animal needs that UV light in the enclosure. We will talk a little bit about the different types of UV light in um, a little bit later in this podcast, Mark. Um, but it's also they need to be warm in order to adequately um, absorb that UV light and for that synthesis to occur in them. And I think a lot of people make the failure of putting that UV light mark, and I'm sure you've seen plenty where they might put a, a, a compact fluorescent type UV light, for instance, up one end of the enclosure and the heating element is up the other end of the enclosure. So, um, And we're going to run into trouble there because any time that that animal wants to try and bask under the UV, there's, there's not enough warmth there, so it won't be able to complete the synthesis. So it requires UV light and warmth um, is number one. And what occurs is that pre-vitamin D3 is a substance that is formed in the skin, and that converts to vitamin D3, which is transported to the liver, and then it's converted to our fancy little name, our 25-hydroxyvitamin D3, in the liver, which is the main storage form of the vitamin. So it's stored in the liver there, um, that, that um, converted form. And then that 25-hydroxyvitamin D3 is the substrate for the formation of the vitamin D hormone, which is Kelly calciferol, which is synthesized within the renal cells. And then calcium and phosphorus levels are maintained by the response of vitamin DC receptors in the kidneys, intestines and the bone um, to, to, to keep um, calcium and phosphorus levels within the animal. So it's quite a complex process there. But the way I explain it to the client is that um, that UV light shines on that um, on the skin of that reptile. It's converted in the skin and then in the liver and then it's transported to other organs and and um, um, stored and used as a, as a um, 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 to, to produce the actual vitamin D3. So it's, a, it's quite a complex process there. But um, the simplified version that I sometimes give to clients when they're, when they're really struggling to understand me babbling on, Mark, is that I'll say to them, look, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how much calcium you're supplying in the diet to your lizard to your snake to your to your um, turtle um, if that animal doesn't have adequate vitamin d3 floating around its system it won't be able to utilize that calcium correctly yep i often use the term gatekeeper that the the, the vitamin d3 is the gatekeeper and you can pour calcium into the food but it'll just end up in the stools because the gatekeeper isn't there to let it in brendan the gatekeeper, yes. yes. So, um, oh, let me write that down. <laughs> the natural light. You've talked about natural light, and um, you know, we we uh, I've got no doubt that it is best. The the you know we 
very rarely see um, any evidence of problems in wild animals who have access to natural light. So, you know, pretty good uh, uh, comparison group. Um, but um, I also hear a lot about um, uh, unfiltered sunlight in captive situations. Um, what, what's, what do you mean by unfiltered light, Brendan? Yeah, well, going back one step, yeah, natural light. I really push these days, every single client that comes in with a reptile, I really push them to have an outside enclosure that they have as a secondary enclosure if, if the animal's housed indoors in a vivarian, that they can get it out there even in wintry Melbourne or, or Tasmania or, or wherever, wherever in the world that that um, reptile is kept, that it does have an outside enclosure that's secure, that's um, escape-proof and predator-proof, that has a, a mesh just like a, um, a, a, a fine mesh. Um, it can be a metal mesh but not, certainly not um, glass or perspex and that's where that unfiltered light comes into it because we'll have... I've lost count of how many people will come in and say, oh, but my reptile enclosure is next to the window. Um, so my little friend gets lots of UV exposure. Um, and the bad news there is most, if not all, um, glass um, and most perspex filters out UV rays, Mark. So having the enclosure next to the uh, next to the window doesn't help so they aren't getting unfiltered light so the unfiltered light is if you're the if you're the reptile looking up um into the sky it, it is not through a um a barrier like perspex or glass mark i i am um, will frequently suggest to people that shade cloth can be um a uh, um uh, you know that is a suitable screening material and particularly if you've got a hot day it's good to maybe not leave them in direct sunlight make sure they've got a refuge to get to um but um i was gonna say that oh. well regarding those enclosures mark what i usually suggest these days is is the concept of the rabbit hutch is what I suggest for most of these people because one, they're readily available, two, they're they're inexpensive, and, and three, it has everything that we want in the concept for these outside enclosures. It has a mesh and then it has that bedroom or enclosed area so that reptile can get away from the light and it's not going to get cooked because unfortunately over the years I have had a few reptile um, owners that have cooked their reptiles in the backyard a classic one was a owner that had a little they got a little dome of chicken wire mark and they put their blue tongue lizard out in the backyard in direct sunlight it wasn't a particularly hot day but the animal was just left out there and um, the owner um, was distracted um, they were planning to only leave it in that little dome of, of chicken wire for about 15 to 20 minutes and they ended up leaving it there for about six or eight hours and um, when they went back out there it was well and truly cooked and dead so um, yeah the concept of the rabbit enclosure uh, the rabbit hutch type enclosure I think works very well in including the chelonians the turtle type enclosures um, most of those um, turtles that we commonly see mark can be housed in in a rabbit hutch as well to provide them with adequate um, exposure to unfiltered light. And the owner will immediately then ask me, what about the pond? Doesn't he need somewhere or she needs somewhere to to um, to um, bathe in? And I usually just mention, hey, if you've got a fairly small turtle or um 
just have a little cat litter tray that you put some of the water from the aquarium in there and you have a little brick on either side, uh, like a ramp, so it can get in and out of its little uh, little pond that you've made from a, a cat litter tray, and that's all you need. So you have a little hide in there um, for the turtle or the snake or the lizard. You have a little water source and a food source, and it's escape-proof and predator-proof. And, um, yeah, one, once they, we get that concept across to them, it's amazing how many people will then go out of the way and actually do it and purchase or make a little enclosure like that and um, they work quite well and I'm still astounded of how many of these animals that once they start popping them outside for short periods and um, or longer periods if it's not a too hot or too cold day that they then report back to us that the it is a different reptile mark that it is a totally different animal it, it's vibrant with its colors it, it's behaving much more actively it's um, breeding much better it's eating much better and um, it's a it's a happy little reptile i don't know how you feign surprise when they tell you that stuff brendan but tell me um what about um how long do they like what's the minimum time they should spend outside in those uh enclosures that provide them with unfiltered sunlight yeah well i mean that's a how long's a piece of string it, i think it would in, in in theory depend on the particular species but my recommendations are that they try and have access to natural light at least two or three times a week um half an hour or more um if it's a nice day and not too um too cold and, and not bakingly hot then i often recommend the clients to pop them out and leave them out all day in that outside enclosure um and and i also stress to them that look if it's a cloudy day it doesn't mean that we don't have uv and and um i potentially would then pull out the little uv meter i have mark at work and go outside if it's cloudy and, and show them that we we're getting uv even on a cloudy day um down at ground level so so i think it's a bit of a rubbery thing what do you sort of recommend as a minimum um for exposure to natural light well i think there was some some human literature which suggested that uh, uh for normal function in humans it's only about 40 minutes a week uh, exposure to full sunlight um, will satisfy our production of vitamin D3. But like you, we are a little bit conservative and suggest um, about an hour and a half and dividing it up like you suggested. So the bare minimum would be um, uh, three half-hour sessions a week in in some nice sun. But that's just uh, the bare minimum of uh, of um, cholecalciferol production. And so um more is in because of those other effects we talked about with UVA. Um, I do think that more is better, and a full day when the weather's suitable, definitely the thing to do. Yes, and and having that with that outside enclosure, um, you can have it where you simulate that range of UV as well. So you don't just have a have an enclosed area where it gets away completely and the exposed area. So that's where the concept of the shade cloth, etc., can be also used on top of that rabbit hutch. So it has a gradient and that, that reptile can then decide, okay, and um, I want a little bit more UV and it can move into the um, high UV area or move out of that high UV area. Um, and and I think there are some reasonably good um, papers out there demonstrating that reptiles um, 
some reptiles at least um, will will actively um, seek out UV mark um, separately from from heat. Yeah. So we're absolutely all convinced that uh, um, uh, natural sunlight is best, but I still think there's a strong argument to back that up with some um, light within the uh, vivarium um, to supplement uh, the excellence of natural sunlight. What sort of lights do you stick in the vivariums, Brendan? Well, there's probably two or three that are commonly used, but they generally mention four different types of UVB lamps that are available. And um, if we run down them briefly, Mark, the, the first ones that most people will, will know about are the UVB tubes, um, so the fluorescent type tubes, the classic fluorescent tubes that, that you put in a baton, so those long tubes, thin tubes, similar to the um, tubes that are placed in an, in an aquarium to light the aquarium. Um, so they're UVB tubes, and there's a couple of different types of those um, that, um, that, it, that we lump them into, and that's the T8-type tubes, or um, these days we tend to recommend the, the higher output ones, which are called T5 tubes. So they, they put out a little bit more um, UV be compared with the um, regular T8 tubes there, Mark. But having said that, I, I generally recommend that with all of those, because they're compared with the other tubes that we're going to talk about, especially the, the high concentration UV output ones, they're still not particularly pumping out a huge amount of UVB. So I do recommend putting reflectors in those in the baton, which is a little enclosure that you that you plug that that long tube into. And that can be as simply as putting aluminium foil um, around the the top area of it so we're getting some reflectance there and concentrating that um, 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 output of the UV, UVB because unfortunately my, most people won't have a UVB um, meter um, or, or um, to to read at home and or we can try and recommend to the clients who are not um, measuring them apart from taking them into the vet clinic and and doing the measurements of the tubes and deciding that that's a good tube or that's a bad tube um, is that um, we recommend the regular changing of them which we'll talk about shortly but also um, trying to choose ones that we know are good brands mark and there's several several brands out there you know the obvious ones are the the, the brands like the sylvania ones and the the reptiglow reptisun um all those um all those types of brands that you'll commonly see in the, the reptile shops and i'd stick with those rather than the no name ones um unfortunately there are a fair number of the brands um these days are probably of of of, of suspect quality and and um and and some of them are made in um um, um bulk in in factories in in china where the where the quality control may not be that good um and traditionally the globes, and this includes all the other types of globes that we will talk about in a sec, um, that are made um, either in the US or in Germany, in the, in, in Europe, um, tend to be a better quality, which includes those Sylvania-type ones. Um, and the Zoomed ones, I think, are, are also good quality, Mark. Brendan, what, um, what other sorts besides those uh, T8 and high output T5? Well, just before you talk about, no, we'll do it at the end of this types of lamp section. I've got another question there. But what other types of uh, UV lamps, UVB producing lamps are there? 
Yeah, so the next one would be the compact fluorescent. So they're those little twirly ones. Um, and as the name suggests, those little compact versions of a fluorescent lamp. So they're a fluorescent lamp in a more compact size, Mark. Um, and I think an increasing number of reptile owners are using those ones because they can then put those little compact fluorescent lamps close to the radiant heat source in the enclosure, up one end of the enclosure, so it's closer to that warmth there. So when that reptile decides to bask, it will also be getting keeping warm and it will be getting its exposure to the UVB. So they're the compact fluorescent ones, Mark. Um, so they don't obviously provide any heat and they're, they're providing a pretty low intense, intensity um, UV out. B output there. Um, the next one, we're, we're, we're then jumping onto the ones that are producing a real concentrated sort of um, um, high UV output, and these are the mercury vapor ones, Mark. And these and the, the final one, which are the metal halide, I suppose the easiest description of them. They look like your traditional floodlights that you might have um, in, on a porch um, or in a carport, um, that, that sort of cone shape there, but they're called mercury vapour is the first one. So they can produce high UVB. Um, they all produce really bright light and potentially heat as well. So they act a little bit like a, a patch of sunlight mark in a fairly narrow 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 beam although you can get flood versions of them which um, have basking zones but most of them are sort of spot ones which only emit narrow beams concentrated in a little area so you just have to be make sure that um, you're pointing that in the spot that you um, think is going to be used by the reptile and the final one is that the metal halides and they produce very high levels of visible light and um, the good quality brands also produce UVA as well as UVB marks so they're sort of a good all-rounder um, and they're they're, they're often regarded as the best simulator of um, natural sunlight as well. So the enclosures, as far as visually to the human, they look good as well and probably to the reptile as well. Um, but many of them um, have pretty, probably even narrower beams than the mercury vapour ones, Mark. So, um, yeah, so that's the final one. So we have the, you know, the four general types of fluorescent, classic fluorescent tubes, the compact fluorescent ones the mercury vapor lamps and the metal metal halide lamps and um you know I encourage our listeners just to jump onto one of the the pet shops or the reptile um supply organization um websites in their their relevant country and just have a bit of a browse at the different types of lamps that are available there and some of the better brands as i mentioned like um um Sylvania, um, ZooMed, those sorts of things. Um, they have some um, very good articles on their websites, um, which um, actually the best website is is um, run by probably the guru of UV lighting, and that's Francis Baines, who's a retired veterinarian in Wales. And um, she's a um, lovely person. I've dealt with her um, for many years. We've corresponded for many years because I have a bit of an interest in UV, as you know, Mark. And um, Francis's website, unless it's changed, is uvguide.uk, I think so it is. Um, you might... uvguide.co.uk. Okay, yes, there. Uh, I was just going to say, can you jump on and have a bit of a look to see if her site's still there? So um, her, her site's um, sometimes a little bit out of date with some of the things. She's always trying to update it with her, her, her most current research, Mark, but... Um, 
She's the person who knows more about UV than just about she's, anybody else in the, the world. She's the guru to the gurus, Brendan. She's she, yeah, she certainly yeah, my, is. And, my next um, question. One of the yeah, sorry, I, I was just I'm going to backtrack a little bit, Mark. Um, to, she does talk about, um, and I have had discussions with her. There are perspex um, um, materials that do let through UV rays, Mark, and she experiments with. Um, greenhouse type um, setups in the UK in Wales and England um, for some tortoises and turtles um, whereby they're in, they're in these sort of outside enclosures as, and as you know the, the weather can get quite cool in those environments um, but it, it um, will let through the UV UVB rays through those um, through that perspex marks it's, it's um, and it's something I've been meaning to See if we have. I've got the hiccups at the moment um, that we have in um, Australia um, because I'd love to see if we could make some of those enclosures. Because the advantage of that enclosure would be in the cooler environment, you do have that sort of greenhouse effect where it will get much warmer inside that um, perspex box um, in 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 the backyard or in the outside enclosure. Yep, yep. Um, but it is led in through UVB. I've got two um, questions uh, now that you've talked to us about all the different sorts. Um, I've had cases, particularly with turtles, where some of those less expensive um, generic type uh, UV uh, lights um, have caused problems for the animal's eyes, Brendan. Have you seen um, anything like that? And why does it happen? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I've got some good... Case histories of those with with some great photos that uh, I've sent to Frances, and she's actually used in a couple of presentations. Um, yeah, so UV exposure. So, um, and then we end up the classic ones there are that uh, that I've seen are, are with lizards and bearded dragons in particular, and the interesting. And so they end up with these these um, squamous cell carcinomas primarily um, on the side of the faces I've seen mostly and, and um, some pretty nasty ones where they've basically eaten away the whole eye socket. Um, and on quizzing the owners of, of several of these, certainly not all of them, um, the interesting commonality I've found with the mark is that, and I've tried to quiz the owners without leading them, is that I'm fairly convinced that some of these animals are, are where they may be left or right eyed, Mark, where where when they're sitting or, or moving around their enclosure, they would have, for instance, their left eye um, pointing towards the back of the enclosure or, or towards the UV lamp um, continuously. Um, so they might look at the enclosure where their right eye has not been exposed um, to the UV as much as the left one. So the damage in UV um, would be then coming down just on that one eye. Um, and when I try and quiz them about, hey, which way does he face in the enclosure or she face in the enclosure, it, it invariably tends to point towards the one that has the problem. So we have inadequate, yeah, lamps that are producing um, carcinogenic sort of la- um, um, spectrum of light. Um, so we end up with UV um, irradiation and um, DNA destruction, and we end up with these cancers, Mark, yeah, with them. So the bad news with that is, is again, it's not an easy one to test for, and I just stick with saying make sure you go with the good brands with these with these, um, with these these lamps um, and also make sure you're changing them frequently, which is probably the next thing you were going to um, mention to me. Because unfortunately, I've, I've seen, I don't, I, I don't regularly test the lamps that, 
um, anymore, Mark, because of the time factor with them. But at one, at one stage, I was off in free testing to all my clients. And the scary thing was it was rare, but um, we did see some lamps that the owner had just purchased. So they purchased this um, fluorescent lamp um, you know, last week, um, placed it in the enclosure um, and checked that it turns on and it produces that white light. And then they bring it in for testing. And I've tested a f- few of them, as I say, it's rare, but um, um, that are brand new um, lamps and their UV output was zero, Mark, absolutely zero UVB output. So it's a bit scary um, because we do talk about change in these lights um, and what I tend to say these days is is literally just change them, throw them out every six months um, because there is a degradation of the output of the UVB over time with all of these lamps. So I just ask my clients to literally put a, put in their calendar six months from when you purchase that lamp um, and um, a little note so they get a reminder and, and literally throw it out because the lamp still maybe apparently seem to be working and to human eyes it's producing that white light and we can't cannot tell that the UV output is degraded markedly um, just by our eyes looking at it. Um, so unless you had the UV meters, you can't test for that. So so throw them out every six months is what I recommend, Mark, um, to make sure that they're, they're adequate. But, but, yeah, it's nasty, those ones that have those skin cancers. Have you had we any had of them, We a couple of those bitter dragons. We've also had some turtles that just develop a, a uh, significant keratitis. They uh um, very quickly. Yes, and a ble- yeah. blepharitis as well. So they, they seem sore, they blink, and they, yeah, they, they seem irritated. Yeah, I've definitely seen that in several different reptile species. And the other thing we ask yes. people to do, we don't we don't trust their diary or their Outlook, you know, calendar or anything like that. They get their marker pen and they write it on the actual tube. Um, and, uh, and so when they get to check out their uh, reptile room, they have a quick glance at the actual tube and they know um, that that tube is uh, uh, out of date because it's written on it. Yes, and a good point, and I do mention that to clients sometimes, but you also need to say to them, when you're checking that date, turn the lamp off um, because I'll, I'll tell you one of my stories, Mark. I did have a client who was silly enough to when he kept checking his UV, he was obsessed with checking his UV lamp and he used to open up the the little um, flip top lid of the reptile of the vivarium and um, look at the lamp and, and inspect it fairly closely. And he, I'm, try, I'm trying to, it's a fair few years ago um, how, how long he was doing that for, but it ended up, um, he had a trip to an ophthalmologist and he ended up with, um, I think it was retinal burns um, from, from UV exposure. So, yeah, don't. Um, don't be silly enough to look closely at these um, lamps um, with the unaided eye. Now, Mark. Brendan, I um, you, you, what's what the hell is the go with Ferguson zones? Is is that anything like a Ferguson reflex? Yes, no Ferguson zones. So um, Francis decided to name, and Francis came up with this term Ferguson zones, zones, and it is named after Ferguson, who is another um, expert in um, UV um, lighting in reptiles. And um, she tried to um, simplify things, and it is an estimation. 
or an estimation method of the UV zones suitable for various types of species. So what she's done is she's divided reptiles into four different zones or the, or the, or the UV zones into four zones, and then we place our species into one of those four zones. So it just simplifies things for clients. So, uh, yeah, zone one is is shade dwellers or crepuscular animals and and a good example of that um, that's typically lumped in there as Burmese pythons mark um, zone two a partial sun or occasional basking species and our, our local ones that we'd put into that um, category mark would be our blue tongue lizards and our our water dragons would be zone two um, reptile zone three are open or partial sun baskers and zone four are midday sun baskers um, and and ones sun lovers i suppose is the way to mention those zone four ones and the classic ones there would be you know inland bearded dragons would be zones three slash zone four for instance um so it's it's trying to put them into different zones, um, to, and, the, and the Ferguson zones, that, and there are Ferguson zone designations for lots of species commonly kept in captivity, especially for the ones in Europe and, and the UK, and um, mainly because the British and Irish Association of Zoo and Aquarium Reptile and Amphibian Working Group, Mark, um, decided to develop that system. So they've um, distributed this list of all the animals, for instance, all the lizards or turtles or tortoises and, and snakes in zone one, two, three and four to the zoos and aquariums um, within within the UK so people can look up the commonly kept species and say, okay, this animal's a, a zone four species, so we need to provide a higher um, concentration of UVB for that species because they do like to be out exposing themselves to more UV. Um, so yeah, that's the bottom line with the with the um, with the Ferguson zones. It's trying to simplify things and saying, look, and I, I try and simplify it with the clients, and I say, I'll say to them, look, you have a you have a snake snake species that may live in a rainforest and. Um, it still gets exposure to UV light, and it's amazing. Every every species that they go out into the wild and they look at where that species' habitat is of reptile and they measure the UV output, I don't think there's been one species yet where that they are not exposed to some UV light naturally, Mark. So, um, and and the Ferguson zones are um, increasingly based on actual studies and and and, and hard information there saying that this particular species does require x um, wattage of uvb over its average day during this particular period of the year um, and then lumping it into that particular um, ferguson zone mark so there is a there is an increase in amount of hard science there mark with with popping them into those zones so if i had that snake snake that was brought into me that is um, living in a zone one sort of um, situation i'd say to the client look probably a good selection for your snake is to provide a a um, fluorescent um, uv light that doesn't kick out a lot of uv and um, just ensure that that um, snake isn't constantly exposed to it um, and typically we talk about making sure that the animal with the fluorescent ones mark that they can access it within not 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 closer than say five or ten centimeters but but not further away than you know 20 or 30 centimeters um, if it's much further than that then it's getting probably neat negligible uv exposure to it so they need to be able to to get close physically close to that uv um, thing 
um, light map. And making sure the lights are from above, Mark, um, that's something that we I, I didn't mention um, previously, I don't think, because um, all these animals, we've evolved to have eyebrows, Mark, and, and that's why we have eyebrows. Eyebrows exist to help protect us from UV light into our eyes, Mark, um, to help prevent those, those, um, that damage to our eyes. So if we had UV light in that was shining from below or from the um, flooring um, up into the eyes of that animal, then they would be blinking all the time and they'd end up with those injuries um, to them. So, you know, the sun is above us, Mark, not below us. So, um, and I have had a few clients where they will or they have installed these um, UV lighting situations either, you know, sideways down the bottom of the enclosure or um, for, lot, you know, they wanted a cool lighting effect, um, put in the um, UV lighting for, um, on the ground there. Well, I think um, it's a no-no, Mark. You know, because I've done exactly the same as you've just said then, that uh, if they put those ultraviolet lights too far away, the attenuation over distance of the ultraviolet light means that more than 30 centimetres from most of those tubes, the reptiles are not getting anything. So the clients then roll it down, you know, put the fitting only 10 centimetres up the back. Um, so you do have to uh, explain to people that uh, moving the the fitting closer to the reptile is a good thing, uh, but not putting it in such a way that, uh, that you need to buy miniature sunglasses for the reptiles. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, one example, and I've just, just pulled out one of the little charts here, the ZoomEd Reptisun 5.0 Compact Fluorescent, which is a 26-watt lamp. Um, the UV index, which is a measure of the, the UV output, we won't talk about what's the ideal UV index, um, at 20 centimetres from the lamp is 0.5, and then at 50 centimetres it drops to 0.1, so a fifth of that mark. So it's pretty really dramatic how, how quickly it drops um, a distance, and you really need to tell the clients about the, the, the correlation between distance and, and, and the output of the UV, yeah. Um, Yes. So, and you know, the the, the example I I mentioned to clients about that light, making sure the light shines from above. You know, if you just grab a normal fluorescent light and and put it above your head, um, it, it it's not much trouble, is it? Um, and and, and it, there's no discomfort. But if you turn that UV lamp upside down and hold it at waist level, pointing up towards you, it's uncomfortable. And, and you also, you look um, because we've got eyebrows. <laughs> Um, the uh, the other thing I was just going to finish up with, Brendan, is just a comment that um, while our discussion today has really focused on um, on the effects of ultraviolet light for reptiles, and, it, and I've long been an advocate, uh, as you have, to uh, make sure that their husbandry includes attention to this detail, um, it, it's, I, I really have to um, apologise for not being a more powerful advocate for birds in this regard because they have similar requirements and if they're indoors all the time um, then they can you know some of those pet birds really do miss out on the ultraviolet that they need for their metabolism so it's not while you know reptiles obviously are most important um, uh, we should also think of those uh, other species that uh, may well need exposure to ultraviolet light as well i think it's 
I, I usually state to clients, look, we all need UV. All animals require UV or require the option of access to UV so that they can regulate, including humans. And and that's where I think that they change. And Francis is very keen on um, on the studies of, of um, vitamin D in humans as well and UV exposure. Um, and... That's why they call it a hormone now, Mark, isn't it? Because it has multiple effects and it's much more com- complex organism, uh, uh, um, much more complex um, chemicals than previously thought. Um, and one of the aspects that Francis talks about is that when you haven't been outside and you go and sit outside, not even on a sunny day and you sit there, it's the feel-good hormone, um, that exposure to vitamin D three um or vitamin d um and sunlight makes you feel good and it's not just because you're sat outside not working and 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 falling asleep as you you tend to do mark when you sit outside it's that it is um does have a feel good effect um on the system so i think there's a lot that we don't know about the whole aspects of um vitamin d and um and uv light still and and a lot more to learn so um you know it's good that we have gurus like francis and ferguson around um to help us with that mark isn't it it is indeed and um and uh, you know i know that you've corresponded with um francis frequently over the last decade or so and um and i you know, shout out to Frances. I've used her website repeatedly to um, refresh my understanding of some of the finer aspects of this, and uh, and uh, um, and it is it amazes me how she finds the time to um, you know continually update it. Yes, she's a good one, Mark. She is a good one. Well, all the outro man's here, so we better go, and we will talk to you all next week. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time